Good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm uh, the senior pastor here. We want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us today. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, today, if, you, if this is your first time here, uh, it's a little uh, odd, for, perhaps because we're ending a series, and there's nothing worse than coming in at the end of a series. And uh, we've been working through the book of Philemon, <clears throat> and, uh, which is a book in your New Testament, uh, right before the book of Hebrews. It's a small uh, letter that Paul writes, uh, 25 verses long. Uh, it is written by Paul while he's in prison. And uh, we're just going to be looking at the last couple of verses as we end our series. And, um, but just so that everybody is kind of at least knows a little bit about what's going on, uh, essentially Philemon is a, uh, a Christian <clears throat> who lives in the city of Colossae. Uh, the uh, letter of Colossians is written uh, to the church at Colossae. It's in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And uh, he has, he's a Christian. The church meets at his house. And he has a slave, and his slave's name is Onesimus. And Onesimus runs away and runs to where Paul is in prison. Paul witnesses to him about the gospel, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And then Paul does something very interesting. He writes this letter to Philemon and uh, sends with Onesimus not only this letter, but the letter uh, in your New Testament called Colossians. And Onesimus takes this letter back to the guy who uh, was his master, is his master, however you want to look at it. And uh, I appreciate the engagement that you guys have done, small groups have done, and digging deep into this this letter. As we kind of looked at, how do do we deal with people who are living lives that are contrary to what the church teaches with regard to uh, slavery here in uh, Philemon? Uh, how do we stand in the midst of a world that says this is how we want things conducted, but the church says our faith, our Christian faith says, no, that, that's not how we live. Uh, what are some of the, the implications of things like humility and forgiveness? And so hopefully you've dealt with some of those things and uh, have enjoyed uh, uh, bearing down on some of those issues. And so we pick up in the last couple of verses in the book of Philemon. So if you have your Bibles and you've turned to Philemon, or you have your phones and you can pull out your phones too as well, verse 23 uh, of Philemon, Epaphras, some say Epaphras, but generally it's pronounced Epaphras, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He's going to get a sermon out of that? (laughs) With God's help. So pray for God's guidance as we turn our hearts and minds to his word. Centuries ago, punishment was pretty severe for crimes, particularly crimes of stealing. Stealing was a big deal centuries ago. It still is today. But back in the day, hundreds of years ago... If you were caught stealing, uh, lots of things could happen. You could have your hand cut off, or you could be branded. And there's a story of two young boys who grew up, and they were troublemakers, always getting into trouble, always doing things they shouldn't do. And I really resonate with that because I was that way when I was a kid. And we're the kids that always grow up to be pastors, just to let you know that. And uh, so these two boys, 
uh, everything escalated, and finally they got caught stealing sheep. And so they were brought to the constable of the village, the guy who oversees the legal life of the village, and uh, he was sick of it. He'd been dealing with their shenanigans all of their childhood, and so he decided to do something rather severe. So he had them taken to the village town square. There they were forced to kneel, and they branded the letters ST on their foreheads. Branding was a common uh, thing that was done for people who were just repeat offenders. And that way, they not only carried the mark of their sin, but we, as law-abiding citizens, would know what kind of people we're dealing with as soon as we met them. The words ST, the letters ST, were to remind everybody that they met that they were sheep thieves. Well, we finished Philemon, and uh, where do we go from here? Well, today's message is the last part of this series, and we read the last few verses of this book, and frankly, it's probably the parts of the Bible, books of the Bible, that we skip over. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, reading the first chapter of Matthew. You know that chapter, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they stretch out 20, 30 verses with the begats. It's almost as bad as the genealogy that's found in Genesis that traces all the people from the times of Adam all the way up to the times of, of, of Abraham and times of... It's just the parts you skip in the Bible. No one reads the names, these long lists of names when they read the Bibles, just like they don't generally read the, read the long list of laws that are in the book of Leviticus. We just sort of skim those sorts of things, which isn't always a good thing, particularly with the genealogies, the list of names, because in these genealogies, we're introduced to some really fascinating people. As a matter of fact, I think Matthew chapter 1 ought to be read at every Christmas Eve service, not just to bore the tears out of people, but because some of those people in that genealogy of Christ had such fascinating lives, and to be able to look at them and say, this is the person that ultimately led to Jesus Christ is something that can be quite encouraging. We'll save that for Christmas this year, okay? So as we go through these last few verses, what I'd like to do with you today for a few moments is just spend some time with each of these folks who've been named and introduce them to us again. And the first guy that we're introduced to, well, initially, in, in the, in, when we began the letter, we're introduced to Paul, who's the author, Timothy, who, if you're a Star Wars fan, is sort of Paul's Padawan, is his most favorite student, and, and then we go on with the letter. But at the end of the letter, we're introduced to the first guy, Epaphras. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Who on earth is Epaphras? Well, Epaphras is actually mentioned in the Bible three times. Now, to put this into uh, some, some frame of reference, uh, Nathaniel, who's one of the 12 disciples uh, of Jesus, he's mentioned in the Bible four times. So Epaphras is mentioned almost as many times as one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, one of the original 12. When we think about uh, how the Bible talks about Epaphras, we can begin to see a little bit more about who he was. He's mentioned in both Philemon and Colossians, which is the letter, as I've already said, that is sent with Onesimus back to Philemon at the church at Colossae. 
And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, as Paul is writing that letter to the church that Philemon is a part of, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So we know that Epaphras was some kind of teacher or, or preacher, but the text really highlights who Epaphras is a little bit later in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Epaphras, which is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. Epaphras, a man of prayer. We can safely assume from just the New Testament alone that Epaphras was a respected pastor in this part of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. He's credited with serving several New Testament churches, including Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, all of which are mentioned in the book of Revelation. But what really singled Epaphras out, according to Paul, was that he was a pastor who struggled in prayer. He toiled over the church before God, wrestling with God, praying for the Colossian church. He wanted them to excel, and he cried out to God for their spiritual success. Now, in our culture today, many of us, when we talk about prayer, you know, we, what do we say? We say, man, our thoughts and prayers are with you. What does that mean? Or for some of us, we might say, you know, hey, I'll pray, Bob, I'll pray for you. And then we don't pray for Bob until three days later, we see Bob coming down the street and we say, Lord, please be with Bob. And then when we see, Bob, I've been praying for you. What does it mean to pray as struggle? Not just this remembering, not just this speaking to God on their behalf, but like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, we read, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as son and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. You and I are called to groan in prayer. I wonder what it would be like if we dived deeper into that. Because you know what else the New Testament speaks about when it speaks of groaning? As a matter of fact, Paul addresses this just a few verses later in chapter 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with, y'all know what's coming, groanings too deep for words. When was the last time you groaned in prayer? When was the last time that you and I struggled in prayer? Sean and I have groaned in prayer before. A couple of times, actually. When our son Isaac was born, they told us he would not survive through the night. We groaned all night long. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know what words we needed to use to persuade and convince the 
one true God of the universe to look upon us with mercy. And so we just groaned. We just begged God. We fell to our knees and groaned in prayer. Have you groaned for your family? I know some of you have. Have you groaned for your spouse? I know some of you have. Have you groaned for this congregation? Like Epaphras, have you been driven to your knees begging God to bless the work and ministry of this congregation that we'd be a faithful church for the sake of the gospel? I know some of you have. Have you groaned for the whole church of Jesus Christ throughout the world that finds itself in places of persecution? Have you groaned for the persecuted believer? Have you groaned and begged for the lost and those who are desperate to hear of God's love through Jesus Christ? Have you groaned for your friend, your brother, your sister in Christ who's struggling to sense the presence of God in their life? God is waiting to hear our prayers just like the prayers of Epaphras. Next we meet another Name in this list, we meet Mark. Mark had traveled with Paul and Barnabas during their missionary journeys, establishing churches throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. On one of those journeys, and this is all in the book of Acts, you don't need to go read any other books, you can just go read your Bible in the book of Acts. And at one point in the book of Acts, uh, Barnabas and Mark and Paul have been traveling, and Mark just decided he had had enough. It was sick. He was sick of it. And so he decided that he was going to go home, and he left Paul and Barnabas. Now, apparently, this didn't set very well with Paul. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and 39, after Paul and Barnabas had returned to Jerusalem, they had a Jerusalem council in Jerusalem to deal with some church issues. All of this is in the book of Acts 2. And after the council, uh, they decided that they'd go back out and, and visit the churches they had established on their previous missionary journey. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. Here, let me read to you what it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city where we proclaimed the word of God and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement. And see, y'all think that the church just started arguing today. There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Even in the first century, sometimes it was better for Christians who couldn't see eye to eye just say, hey, we need to take a break from each other for a while. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And that's the last we hear of Mark, specifically in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts then continues and goes with Paul as Paul continues his missionary journeys ultimately to Rome. So what are we to learn about Mark? Well, we can know a few things from the Bible because we have this thing called the gospel of Mark. Yes, brothers and sisters, this guy, Mark, is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. I don't know about you, but I'm glad Barnabas fought for Mark. Tradition tells us that Peter, along with Barnabas, took Mark under his wing. 
and from the writings of other early Christians that are not in our Bible, but we still have those writings from the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century, these two men, Peter and Barnabas, had such a profound influence on the life of Mark that they, the writers of these other uh, uh, letters and books, credited their relationship and mentorship with saving Mark's life. Because Mark, one who stumbled but kept going. You know what? It's not for the faint-hearted to invest our lives in someone else, especially when that someone else has stumbled or fallen. Now, it's been said that the church likes to kick its wounded. Have you heard that before? I know with pastors that can sometimes be true. A pastor falls from grace, or does, and by that I mean he does something uh, that they're not supposed to do. Y'all can fill in the blanks. And when that pastor is down on the floor, a church will come along and haul off and kick him right in the head. I just want to give you a little alert. I'm just as depraved, broken, and sinful as you are. And too often in the church, we set folks up to be perfect. Whether they be pastor, whether they be elders, we're just, we, we struggle with the same things you struggle with. And what's so interesting is, is that we in the church do that to ourselves, and yet we don't recognize that's what the world does to us. Because when we seek to stand for something that's true or right or God-breathed, the world says to us, how can you say that? Look at, and you fill in the blank, so-and-so who does this, that uh, Christian who acts that way, or, or that pastor who has committed that sin. And we get angry at the world for, for judging us and judging the truth of what we have said based upon our ability to be perfect, and yet we do that with our brothers and sisters that are sitting in the very room with us. This expectation of perfection as proof of Christ's perfection is contrary to how the Bible talks about it. As a matter of fact, what the Bible says is that it is in our imperfection that the perfection of Christ is made known. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a little irritated with Paul. I mean, I mean, yeah, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he's a great, powerful man, preacher, and all that sort of thing, but he abandoned Mark. You, you might even say, and I guess I'll take this up with him when I get to heaven, as if we'll care about it, he was a jerk. Thank God Barnabas was there to catch him. But even though I might be a little hard on Paul sometimes, recognizing Paul's not Jesus, by the way, Paul, even in his unwillingness to give Mark another chance, even Paul understood how God works when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this, But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Just before we go on, I want you to see this. God chooses the weak. God chooses the foolish. And God chose me and you. If we should boast... Let us boast in the Lord. Next, we meet Aristarchus. Now, we don't really know much about him. 
He's not written much about. There's very few icons or paintings of who he was. This is one of the few. We do know that his name means, quote, the best prince. And so Aristarchus is the best prince. Now, some scholars believe that he was probably a government official. And some stories even relate that he was successful in using his position of influence to advance the gospel. Now, we don't really have any definite uh, way of, 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 of saying that that was true, but it does raise the question, what would it look like if we used the places of influence that God has called us into, into our lives, to advance the gospel, even if it risked that position? God has called each of you uniquely into a circle of friends in your workplace, in your family. What would it look like to leverage that position for the sake of the gospel? Well, there's always a bad story in the midst of good stories, and the same is true today. We meet Damas. He's mentioned fondly in both Philemon and Colossians, but when Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul gives us the bad news. For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Damas, he's the one who walked away. It's hard to watch people walk away, to lose their love, to fall in love with the present world. It's hard to watch a child walk away from the faith, walk away from their church. It's hard to watch a friend walk away from a relationship with, with, with no explanation of why they no longer want to be with us or hang out with us. It's devastating when a spouse walks away. People sometimes say to us in the world, here's what will bring you happiness, wealth, power, prestige, adulation. The phrase that I hear being bantered around a lot these days is, don't you want to be on the right side of history? No, I don't care about the right side of history. You know what side I want to be on? The side of Christ, regardless of whether or not the culture says that that's the right side of history. It doesn't matter to me. The world tempts us, and sometimes that temptation is too great. And what is so troubling is that the admiration of the world becomes more precious to them than the words from God, well done, my good and faithful servant. Next, we meet Luke, the physician. For our purposes today, he is Luke, the healer. He too, like Mark, wrote one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, Luke and Acts are really a part one and part two of the same book. Luke is detailed in his description of both the life of Christ and the life of the early church. As a matter of fact, the full name of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. But what's so powerful about Luke's gospel is that as a healer, he seems to focus more on folks who are sick and broken and struggling than any of the other gospels. 
If you read one, any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read Matthew, Matthew's interested in proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. When you read Mark, whom I've already mentioned, uh, Mark uses the word immediately more the word immediately, more than any other book in the New Testament. And, and if you sit down and you read Mark all in one, in one reading, Mark is, is so preoccupied, uh, rightly so, with Jesus getting to the cross. That is, is the whole focus of Mark is, is that it is Jesus Christ who bears the weight of sin and rebellion upon the cross. John. John's not so much interested in, the, in, in, in all of the fine dating and, and organizing of the material, but more about who Jesus is and, and, and what does it mean when we say Jesus is preexistent? What does it mean when we say Jesus is divine? As a matter of fact, the first few verses of John put that out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, but Luke, all of the stories that you know where Jesus deals with, with women... Oftentimes, unfortunately, folks who were not respected in the first century, they're in the Gospel of Luke. When you read about Jesus' interchanges and conversations and, and healings of Gentiles, folks who the Jews just could not stand to be around, they're most likely in the Gospel of Luke. When you read the stories about Jesus touching the lepers, guess where they are? You got it. The Gospel of Luke. You see, what Luke does is Luke reminds us of our call as a part of the church, that you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. And what Luke does is he reminds us that we are to touch the untouchable, to embrace the unembraceable, to reach out to those that the world turns their back on. That's who Luke is. And finally, we meet the four folks that were prominent characters at the beginning of this book, two of them, Philemon and Onesimus himself. Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and Onesimus. I had to black out a part of this uh, icon, this painting, because it was really too gruesome. You can imagine what lies under that blacked out mark. The person that I blacked out is Apphia. Some say that that was Philemon's wife. We don't really have any proof of that. Modern scholars say that that wasn't the case, that she was simply a, a servant leader in the church at Colossae. Others uh, say that Archippus was perhaps their son. Again, we have no proof of that, but we know that he was some sort of leader in, in the church at Colossae, perhaps even a deacon of the church, one of the, one of the, the, the mid-level servant leaders of the church. Of course, we know who Philemon is, and we know who Onesimus is. What happened to all three of these people? What happened to Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus, and Onesimus? Well, they all shared the same fate, almost at the same time. Because according to all of those other writings and church tradition, Onesimus would go on to become a bishop of the church. Now, now, a bishop isn't the kind of bishop that you think of today that we see in the New Testament. A, a bishop probably was more like a, an elder on steroids. A, a, a bishop was somebody who had, was passionate at preaching and teaching and evangelizing, a, a revered leader of the early church. And, and Onesimus, this guy who was once a slave, became this revered leader and would have been charged with the task of primarily defending the faith and leading others to Christ. 
and their message of these four, their commitment to the Prince of Peace would lead them to a violent end. Onesimus beaten to death by folks who didn't want to hear the gospel. That is, they all were martyrs. So those two brothers, now branded with the letters S-T on their foreheads, they responded very differently. One of them left the village and was never heard or seen ever again. But the other one, he decided that that moment he would live his life differently. And so he made the decision to stay in that village with that mark of shame on his forehead. And he did everything that he could do in his life to define his life differently. He would become known as one who loved his neighbors. He cared for the sick in the village. He spoke kind words to those who were hurting, even to the wayward teenagers who got caught troublemaking. He cared for the abandoned children. Decades would pass, and he would ultimately die. As they were carrying the body to his final resting place, there was a young boy in the village who witnessed what was going on. And as he strained to see this dead body, as young boys are always apt to do, he saw the letters ST branded on that forehead. And he turned to the pastor who was leading the funeral possession and he said, Pastor, what does that ST stand for? The pastor looked at the little boy and he said, well, it happened long ago. I don't really remember the details, but I can tell you this. I've watched him live his life in service to the Lord and to others. And I would say that more than likely that ST on his forehead means he was a saint. Now, some of you might feel branded today. Some of you might be walking around with brokenness and guilt and shame that's been placed upon you. And some of you may think that there's no hope, but I'm here to share with you this good news. In Christ, that brand can be changed. And you, too, a saint, one who is in Christ. Oh God, we've come into this place today from different places and in different circumstances. Some of us have arrived in this place angry and uncertain. Others of us have come joyful and singing. We thank you that in this small letter of 25 verses and just those few sentences that ended, we saw how the brands and the tiny letters that have been put to our name can be changed by you. And so, Father, 
We commit ourselves to you this morning. We receive your grace and we walk in the light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.